If you were to say how you best know someone, I wonder uh, what, what you would say. I guess as most of you would say that you get to know someone best by spending time with them, such that you see who they are in a number of circumstances, you see their character worked out in different situations. One of the best evidence that you know someone is when someone accuses them or says something bad about them, and you can respond, that's not like them. And you respond that way because you've spent enough time with them that you know that what's being said about them is not in accord with their character, what you know they're like. How does God teach his people what he's like? He didn't drop a book. He revealed himself over time such that his people could see who he is in different circumstances and settings to see his character in different ways. And once Isaac's time has come to carry forward what God is is doing in the world, the question that Isaac would have asked, the question God's people would have asked was, will the God who revealed himself to Abraham now be the same to Isaac? Is he a God who's fickle? Does he change with the times? Or can he do in the next generation what he did in the generation before. This morning, we're going to see just that in Genesis 26. If you you need a Bible, there are some in the back. Some of you hopefully don't resort to using your phone, but if you do, that's fine. There are Bibles in the back if you want a hard copy of the Scriptures. Just uh, go back there or raise your hand and someone will bring you one. In this chapter, we're going to see that in the way that the Lord relates to Isaac, and Isaac relates to the Lord, it's like father, like son. And we're going to walk through this chapter this morning, and I want you to see this, that God remains committed to blessing the world, and nothing in the world can stand in his way. God remains committed to blessing the world. Nothing in this world can stand in God's way. So we're just going to walk through the different sections or scenes in this chapter to see how the Lord works and his ways with Isaac. First, God promises Isaac. God promises Isaac. That's there in the first five verses. When we come to Chapter 26, suddenly there's trouble. In verse 1, we see there was a famine in the land. Abraham faced a famine in Genesis 12. Now Isaac faces a famine. And Isaac goes to this place called Gerar, where Abimelech was king of the Philistines. Now there has already been a king, Abimelech, In Genesis, Abraham encountered him in Genesis 20 and 21. This is probably his son or grandson. Abi is probably his name. Malek is king. So Abi, the king. And like his father, 
Isaac must have intended to go down to Egypt because there in verse 2, the Lord appears to Isaac and he gives him direct revelation not to go there, but to dwell in the land that the Lord tells him. And what is that land? It's this place called Gerar. And what does the Lord promise Isaac? Look at verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. When Isaac was on the mountain with Abraham and he was about to be sacrificed, the Lord provided a substitute for Isaac. And the Lord also there audibly reaffirmed his promises to Abraham to bless him. Offspring, land, blessing. Isaac would have heard all of that. He knew the promises God, Yahweh, the Lord, made to his father. And here the Lord makes clear to Isaac, by direct revelation, he will do for Isaac just as he did for Abraham. God is keeping his covenant. He will bless Abraham's offspring, Isaac. So the promise continues. His offspring will multiply and his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But notice, verse 5, it's because Abraham obeyed God's voice, kept his charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. The, the language is full. It's descriptive of Abraham's total, unreserved obedience to God. So this covenant God made with Abraham was unconditional. God promised freely land, offspring, and blessing. But there were conditions that had to be met, proven by the fact that Abraham's unreserved obedience to the Lord is the reason for God establishing the covenant with Isaac. So in one sense, this covenant is unconditional. God makes promises. And in another sense, God gave Abraham conditions, obligations he and those in the covenant must fulfill. How is that tension that we see resolved? God, by God, himself in his son taking on flesh to meet the covenant demands. God's son dying for those who failed to keep the covenant demands. God makes an unconditional covenant with conditions because God himself planned to fulfill them. God makes the conditions. God keeps the conditions. But Isaac's story here begins in a famine. He's in a foreign land. He's under a foreign king. And he must sojourn like his father, he will have to learn to live in tents. Dwelling in a land, God will show him. 
But what does Isaac have? He has the word of God. And he has the promise of God's presence. I will be with you. One of the great promises God gave his people, God gives his people, is his presence. And God's never wavered on this. When they sojourned in the tents, when they wandered in the wilderness, when they went into exile, God went with, God was with his people. And now he's with his people in Jesus Christ. God's sure presence with us frees us to live as strangers in the world. It frees us, if you will, metaphorically, to live in tents. Because in Christ, we have God and his sure word of promise and presence. Isaac is in a famine, but he has the Lord's word and his presence. And just like his father, that is more than enough. So what does God do with Isaac? He repeats the promise and he expands it. He promises Isaac to give him all these lands. What does God say of Abraham? Abraham obeyed and he kept. Now, did Abraham's faith falter and fail? Yes. But did Abraham ultimately prove faithful to the Lord? Yes. So God's grace is seen not just here in the fact that he takes the initiative to speak when he wasn't obligated to, but also in the the gracious way the Lord speaks about Abraham. Abraham's failures are not hidden in Scripture. But God's grace is such that he does not highlight Abraham's failures, but his faith and his faithfulness. I want you to see that because I fear, I know some of you have hard thoughts about God when God does not have hard thoughts about his own people. And God's grace is seen in the fact that he gives his word to Abraham, he repeats it to Isaac, and now his word comes to us. How gracious of God. He knew Isaac's weakness, so he speaks to him. He wasn't ignorant of Abraham's sin, but he highlights his faithfulness. There is no cancel culture with God. God didn't change from Abraham to Isaac, and he's not changed from Isaac to you. God's patience, God's kindness, God's generosity and goodness in the way that he relates to his people, it should cause you to see God is kind. See just how determined also God is not just determined to bless all the nations of the earth, through Isaac's offspring, but how clear he is. This is my agenda from the very beginning. It burdens any earthly father who's worth anything if their children do not believe they love them. And if they don't know it, how much more with our God who becomes to us a father in Jesus Christ who is committed to our our good. God promises Isaac. Secondly, Number two, God protects Isaac. God protects Isaac, verses six through 11. God protects Isaac, promise, protection. 
Isaac obeys the Lord. He does not go down to Egypt like Abraham did. He settles in Gerar just as the Lord commanded him. And what happens? Just as Isaac received God's promises like Abraham, so now Isaac obviously sins like Abraham. Look at verse 7. Just like Abraham did in Genesis 12, Genesis 20, there with King Abimelech and Gerar, Isaac lies about his wife. He says, she's my sister. Doesn't say, she's my wife. Just like his father, he believes the men will kill him because she's so attractive. Now, we're not surprised this doesn't go well for Isaac. Look at verse 8. They'd been there a long time. The Lord had protected both of them to this point. The fact that they'd been there for so long and both are still alive is proof God is present with them. But what is Isaac more aware of? He's more aware of the king's presence than he is the Lord's. And it was after this long time in verse 8, Abimelech sees Isaac laughing with his wife. Now this is obviously more than just laughing. He's showing her some kind of affection appropriate for a married couple. Now for you curious skeptics out there, this is clear. This story is not arranged chronologically. Jacob and Esau are not there. They're not mentioned. If they were there, somebody would have known they were a family. After all, it's been many years. So this is arranged theologically in order, not chronologically in order. This would have taken place in those 20 years between Isaac marrying and and praying for a son. Why? I am persuaded that this is the case because we are meant to reflect on how God is relating to Abraham and Isaac and how they're relating to God. Abraham's name is all over this chapter. And the similarities between Abraham and Isaac's lives are not a coincidence here. Anyway, verse 9, Abimelech calls Isaac in and he says, how could you say to me she was your sister? And Isaac is clear at the end of verse 9, because I thought lest I die because of her. Like father, like son. And just like with Abraham, it's the pagan king who is the one concerned in verse 10 about the guilt of taking Isaac's wife and what that would have brought upon his people. And verse 11, Abimelech warns, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now see the irony. God has just promised Isaac through you, your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. And Isaac immediately, instead of bringing blessing to the nations, he endangers them by his guilt. His lie would have brought guilt upon them. And what else? He puts his own life, his wife's life, in danger. Now go all the way back to Adam. Genesis shows us again and again the disastrous consequences of men who do not trust God's word. Whether it was Adam or Abraham or Isaac, the husband's distrust of God's word leads their wife into danger. So very obviously, we who are husbands 
should ask our wives who are for us and love us, are we leading them to trust God's word? We should ask our children. Do we lead them to trust God's word? Imperfectly? Absolutely. I would be the first to say it. Hopefully faithfully and repentantly. Let's ask the Lord to help us in this. What impact this has beyond our lives. For those of us who've had fathers that did this faithfully, we know their imperfections. How grateful we are that they led us in this way. If you're not married, you should be aiming to develop habits where you obviously trust God's word. Carries over into marriage or whatever circumstances the Lord calls you. There is times when trusting God's word is especially hard. With our children, when sin tempted you last week, when we want to shrink back in fear because of what we see, prepare now for those times. May the Lord give us grace to trust his word. Notice again that sin does not stop God from blessing his people. Abimelech promises royal protection for Isaac and Rebekah when he could have killed Isaac and done what he pleased with Rebekah. God is the one who's ultimately bringing about his covenant blessing. Isaac has God's sure word in his presence, but he's afraid of this regional king. A former pastor used to say, the way of faith is the way of the ear, not the eye. What's more powerful to you in this world? What you see or what you hear from the Lord? The presence of God with you always or being in the exact right place that you think you should be in the world. Isaac heard God's word, but what he saw was overpowering to him. And it's no different for us today when we read God's word or when it's preached to us, we are hearing God's word. It's just as powerful and sure. So the age of sight has not come. We live in the age of the ear. And what we hear, what we read, is more powerful than what we see. So are you forming habits to take in God's word so that you rely on his word? You're reading the word. Are you meditating on the word? If you're not, start to. Little by little, read it. Linger in it. Toss it around in your mind. Ask questions of it. Pray it to God. Let it shape the way you're seeing the world. The more you get into the scriptures, the more the scriptures will get into you. Notice Isaac is a sojourner. He lives in this land in which he and Rebekah were afraid they'd be killed. He's vulnerable. These are not his people. This is not his place. He has to live in view of promises that clearly seem impossible to him to come to pass. So must we. I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, if I heard God's word audibly, I'd never do that. But you hear God's word. You have God's word. It's inscripturated for us. When it comes to your sin struggle, maybe 
uncertainty or unfaithfulness. God simply wants you, just like with Isaac, take him at his word. Trust him. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. Doesn't matter that you might feel lost in life or even in the world. If you're trusting Christ, he's with you. His word assures you. The spirit confirms it to you. Let me just say one of the chief evidences of whether you're a Christian is what you do with God's word. Do you desire to know it? Do you want to obey it? Are you embarrassed of God's word? Is it boring to you? A Christian will delight imperfectly but faithfully in God's word and will seek to live under it. We'll seek to know it. If it's of no interest to you, if you trust another word altogether, you can't say you're a Christian with any confidence. God's word is the most powerful force in the universe. And Isaac traded his confidence in it because he feared this ruler. But God's word proved more powerful than that. We learn here, Isaac was protected by God. God's word is good and God's word is enough. God protected Isaac. Third, God prospered Isaac. God prospered Isaac. We're in verses 12 through 22. Verse 12, what happens? Isaac stays in the land. Now with the assurance and the protection of the land's king for Rebekah. He sows there. He reaps in the same year 100-fold. This would have been extraordinary. Remember, we're in a famine. The narrator states what's obvious, but we often overlook the obvious. The Lord blessed him. And verse 13, he became rich, very wealthy. Verse 14, flocks, herds, servants, to the point that the Philistines envied him. So what did the Philistines do? Verse 15, Abraham had all these wells that were dug by his servants, and now the wells were filled with dirt. Now, why did they do that? Well, to keep Isaac's livestock, cattle, from grazing on that land. And verse 16, Bimelech wants him gone. He recognizes you are much mightier than, than we are. So Abimelech used his authority to protect Isaac and Rebekah. And now he's going to use his authority to deport Isaac. Go away from us. Here's Isaac, a man who knows God's blessing, and he has no stability in his life. All this wealth, and he has to wander. So verse 17 Isaac departs, goes to the valley of Gerar. He camps there. Here we have another moment in which Isaac acts like his father, Abraham. Abraham's wealth increased and his servants had a dispute with Lot's servants over the land. And here's the same for Isaac and his servants. And in both instances, Abraham and Isaac Go away from the land that would have been preferable by sight. Moreover, Isaac, whom the king himself said, you are mightier than we are, 
He doesn't fight for the land. He exercises faith in God to do what God has promised. So he chooses not by sight, but by faith. Despite every reason to think otherwise, he trusts God will bless him. God will bless the world. And what is God doing? He's teaching his people from their earliest days. This is the way that he works. Even in the midst of famine. Even in the midst of opposition. So what does Isaac do? Well, look at verse 18. He he digs those wells that Abraham's servant dug. The Philistines had stopped up. Notice, after the death of Abraham. So in Genesis 21... Verses 23 through 33, the former king Abimelech made a peace treaty with Abraham such that all of Abraham's wells would be protected. That's why at the end of verse 18, Isaac gave these wells the names that his father had given them. So notice this contrast. The human king's word proves not reliable. But the word of the true king is proving reliable. For all their power, the word of a human king can be overturned in one generation. But the word of the world's true king will never be overturned. And this strange conflict over wells in this valley shows it. Trust the word of God. Verse 19. When Isaac's servants were able to dig in the valley, they they found a well of spring water. There was conflict. Verse 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So that well's name was Essek, meaning contention. Verse 21 again, they dug, they quarrel over the well. Isaac names it Sitna, which means enmity. And then verse 22, he digs another well. They did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth, meaning room or broad place. For verse 22 Now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be driven of fruitful in the land. He's driven out of Gerar. There's conflict over not one, not two, but three different places for a well. And finally, there is room. He's in a broad place, confident the Lord will make him fruitful. God has prospered Isaac, not because Isaac fought for blessing, but as Isaac exercised faith in God's word. Here, Isaac was prospering. He's deported. He can't even dig wells where his father had a peace treaty that allowed him to do so. But even ultimately, even after the herdsmen of Gerar declared, the water is ours, the Lord makes room for a well over which there will be no quarrel. Rehoboth, God's people were to learn God makes room for his people, not by our power, but by his. Not by our fight, but as we trust him, by faith. It's so easy, isn't it, to see it in this text. It's so hard to do this in our own lives. The Lord put Isaac in these circumstances because the Lord wanted Isaac and his people to see forever. God never fails to come through on his word. His people in the future were going to desire land. They were going to wander in a wilderness. They were going to sojourn. And they needed to be confident as they heard the stories of their fathers. Our God makes 
room for his people. Our God makes us fruitful in the land he gives us. And the Lord will do the same for us. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. Isaac is a meek man of faith. Weakness is the way in the Christian life. Trusting the Lord is the way in the Christian life. So working on this sermon and so many of your faces came to my mind because this has been your life. You live your lives based on promises that do not add up this side of heaven. Keep going. The Lord will make room for you. He will remake the whole world. Keep doing what is so foolish now, but will be so wise then. Share the gospel. Labor in prayer. Wait in faith. This is the way. If you're not a Christian, I I want you to see the, the glory of this. How the Lord was using this to prepare the world for the Messiah. Back in verse five, Abraham is commended because he obeys God's voice and he keeps God's law. Isaac, in the midst of a famine, no food, he does not settle in unbelief. He trusts the Lord's word to provide for him. Centuries later, Jesus of Nazareth would do the same and much more. He'd be tempted in the wilderness to disobey God, to believe the devil's word over God's word. He was famished. He was starving for food. Jesus would pass the test more fully than Abraham, more perfectly than Isaac, better than Adam, certainly better than you and me. God is doing all of this to prepare the world for the Savior. So this chapter teaches and shows clearly human sin is real. It's so evident in this chapter, in your life and in my life, it's not going to be dealt with by human wisdom or human works, but by God. Abraham and Isaac would have many offspring, but ultimately one offspring, Jesus of Nazareth, who would obey God's law, who would keep it perfectly, and then not just die for himself, but lawbreakers from many nations. He came into this world mysteriously, God's son, not to fight, but to die. By faith, meekly, he goes to the cross. He suffers and he dies. And God raised him. And now Jesus has authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He commands you to come to him by faith, to repent of your sin and trust him. It's only in Christ that you can know God's good presence, God's good promises. This story is not ultimately about Isaac. It's ultimately about Isaac's offspring, Jesus Christ God prospered Isaac that he might send Christ to the world. He made room for him. I also want to be very clear. This text is not about the prosperity gospel. Isaac here gets 100-fold blessing. So this tremendous blessing, he knows, should not be understood that that's what the gospel gives if you have enough faith. 
God is uniquely working with Isaac, as he does with Abraham, to show the Isaac and future generations he will keep his promises, he will bring about the birth of Messiah. Remember, Abraham and Isaac dwelled in tents. They knew opposition, yet they were visibly shown this kind of outward prosperity as God furthered his purposes in Christ. God's blessing can make it it, itself known in feast or in famine, in a prison like Paul or in a palace like Esther. But be sure of this, if you trust God in Christ in this world, it will always come with cost. The life of faith is both costly, but it is oh so rewarding. It's just not rewarding in the way that the world always thinks. And that's where the prosperity gospel is off. It teaches you to use God to get prosperity. Whereas the text is making clear, God himself, regardless of your circumstances, is the good of the gospel. Getting him. God's blessing is being known by him and and knowing him. God's prospering looks and is totally different from the way that the world thinks of it. So the prosperity gospel isn't too big for the gospel. It's too small because it offers you something less than God. And it teaches you to use God to get something else instead of coming to God for God. Trust God. He prospers. Fourth and finally, God's peace prevails. God's peace prevails. Verse 23. Isaac goes up to Beersheba. Verse 24, the Lord appears to him that night and the Lord speaks, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Once again, God speaks. He He reaffirms the promises. And to Isaac, who had been fearful, God says, fear not. Why? God is with him. God's word confirms it. Verse 25, Isaac worships. He builds an altar. In response to God's word, Isaac takes the time and the effort to worship. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He pitches his tent. He's still a sojourner. But by faith, Isaac's servants dug a well. By faith, he will know some stability. All is well. Isaac is settled. He will be fruitful and he will have water. But the conflict isn't over. Abimelech is back in verse 26. He went to him from Gerar. He doesn't come along. Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fecal, the commander of his army, He's back with his highest ranking officials. And now Isaac, who was meek earlier, is much more direct in verse 27. Why have you come seeing that you hate me and sent me away from you? They said, verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we've not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. They ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. What God promised 
what Isaac experienced, now pagan king affirms. Verse 28, we see plainly the Lord has been with you. He felt so vulnerable, so unprotected in that foreign land. Now the pagan foreign king affirms the Lord's presence. The king who just deported him is coming to him to ask him for peace. How clearly this has been brought about by God. Just as King Abimelech in Genesis 21 sought peace with Abraham, so this king seeks peace with Abraham's son, Isaac. Like father, like son. And once again, how less true are the king's words than God's. There in verse 29, he says, we haven't touched Isaac. We've done you nothing but good. Not exactly true. He didn't allow him to stay in the land. People clogged up his wells. The king affirms it's Isaac who's blessed of the Lord. The narrator affirmed this in verse 12. The foreign king does here as well. Does Isaac retaliate? No. They feast together. They eat and drink. They exchange oaths. And they separate in peace. They didn't have to proclaim it, but the servants did. We have found water. He has peace. He has land. He has water. He has life. In an episode that began in famine, Isaac is now feasting with the king he once feared. In an episode where there was struggle over water and wells, they're all drinking. In an episode in which there was so much fear, we see the wisdom of faith. In an episode in which nothing felt stable, Isaac has an assurance, you will not be harmed. The well's name is Sheba, which means oath. Beersheba, well of the oath. God's blessing is evident down to the ground, to the water they drink. What keeps you from trusting God? Here it's human wisdom, sight over faith. To trust in God, to grow in faith, is to know God, to have a better vision than what this world offers you. It requires lingering. And as Mark said a few weeks ago, daydreaming about what God will do, his promises, such that your mind and your heart are captivated by them. Then you will live a life in view of the promises. This passage calls, calls you to live by faith what you don't see over what you do. The very end of this account We read in verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Suddenly, the narrator jumps forward to Esau at 40 years old, who's doing as God promised when he was in the womb. While Esau defies God's word, he fulfills God's word. Esau is a man of sight, not faith. He and Jacob and the future generations and you and me will have to wrestle whether we will trust God for what he alone can give and we could never get for ourselves. Whether we will live lives that are based on human wisdom and human power or whether we will trust that who God was to Abraham and to Isaac, he will be to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Steadfast, unbreakable promises. 
As we leave this chapter, ask yourself, am I content to wait on God's promises, to choose the way of faith, not the way of sight? Am I willing to live by what appears to be weakness in this world to receive what can only be gained by the power of God? If you would trust Jesus Christ, you must be. This account shows us clearly this has always been the way. God's blessing is on Isaac and the well with water proves it. From famine to feast, from vulnerability to protection, God reverses the destinies of his people. Gives us what we could never gain for ourselves. He gives us salvation. He gives us a hope and a future. And by the power and the blood of Jesus on the cross, he too brings us and rescues us from spiritual famine and will bring us to the feast.